Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Mark Broker. Mark is a retired Navy captain and currently is a president of Broker Leadership Solutions, a company that is dedicated to helping leaders find success on their leadership journey. He's also the author of a successful book titled Lessons from the Navy, How to Earn Trust, Lead Teams, and Achieve Organizational Excellence. Mark, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to a rich conversation, man. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. It's been great. It's been a few years since we talked, but I'd love just to go back in time a little bit. Obviously, you had a very successful career in the military, but take me back in time. Like, What drew you into joining the military in the first place? Yeah, you know, there's a lot, probably a few reasons, but I, you know, it was back in 83. So that was a big Reagan push for the 600 ship Navy. And, and I was in a job as a pharmacist and I was in a job that paid pretty well in Washington, DC, just a regular drugstore job. And at the time, I didn't know why I didn't like it. It was paid well and hours were pretty easy. And the job was actually pretty easy, but uh, something was missing. And my father was in the Navy, a cousin of mine, and he's referenced in the book, Steve, he did uh, 25 years uh, as chief in the Navy. And he always told me stories about the Navy, and he was about five or six years older than me. So I think, like most people, you know, you have your prominent people in your life have an influence on you. And the Navy was always in the back of my mind. So I took a leap of faith and joined. And really, the primary reason, I, I got to be honest, you know, obviously, I want to serve my country and all that stuff, but it was a free ticket to California. First duty station was San Diego, where I live now. And I said, man, I, I'm from the East Coast, never been to California. It sounded like a pretty good deal. And it was a three-year commitment. Ended up doing 30, but that's kind of how it all started. But it's, it's funny. It's a really good question, Dan. I, I think people join the military for a number of reasons, but I think we all have that common thread. We want to make a difference, and we want to you know, be part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, and that was probably there, but it, maybe I wasn't as cognizant of it as I was towards the end of my career. But it was a great ride. Yeah, I love what you said in terms of that sense of purpose. But I think it's funny when there's the reason behind the reason, right? You know, the ticket to California and and landing in a great place. Obviously, I'm a San Diegan as well, so a big supporter of the region. But let's go back to that in terms of the sense of purpose. Interesting, you said something was missing and obviously a sense of purpose in serving your country. So talk to me a little bit about what that was like and how you were able to to get that sense of purpose in working in the Navy. Yeah, you know, it's hard to pinpoint times where I felt that, but certainly Desert Storm. I got to deploy during Desert Storm, which was a war against Iraq back in back in 1991. That was extremely exciting for me, and I felt, you know, obviously when you're serving your country in a, in a war zone, it's that's pretty cool. But it wasn't. I guess it was hard to say that there was one specific times. But even on bad days, I'll, I'll say this: even on bad days, and you know, you have bad days in the Navy any corporation, any place, even the bad days, I knew in the back of my head, there was a bigger purpose here that, you know, our country is a couple hundred years old and it is an experiment. And I was always mindful of that. And may, again, maybe, maybe I wasn't thinking about it as thoughtfully as I probably should have, but I think in retrospect, you know, I think we all have a bit of patriotism in us and in the 
maybe you know you just you're serving your country. You want to you want to make a difference, and it is an experiment. This thing could go away pretty quickly. I don't know. There was a, I, it's a tough question to answer because there was no specific time. I think over those thirty years, it evolved that I realized that this is a this is an amazing experience, and certainly towards the end, it got very very exciting. So yeah, tough question, man. I hope I answered it appropriately. Yeah, I think to what you bring up is that there's just finding something that's bigger than yourself. And whether it's in the military, whether it's finding purpose in your job or the type of work you do. I mean, for me, it's about helping people and helping them be the best leaders they can be. But maybe it's working for a company that has a sense of purpose that does something for humanity or for society or for the environment or for people, or just even brings joy to folks. I mean, you create products or services that make people happy. So how did your career grow and evolve then? So what was that growth like? What did it require you to be successful throughout your career in the military? Well, you know, I think what was interesting, so I, when I came in, uh, again, 83, here's the, in a nutshell, here's the 30 years in a nutshell, Darren. The first eight years, I started realizing that my joy, my passion, my eagerness to go to work wax and wane. Sometimes really fired up to go to work, other times hated to go to work. And I started looking into it. I realized it had nothing to do with where I was located. As you well know, there's all these place in the Navy, geographic locations are good duty stations and not so good. It had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with the job I had. In, in pharmacy, there's all these different jobs you can have, but it had nothing to do with the specific job I had. When I realized it was my boss, my boss would frankly dictate how fired up I was going to work every day. And there were, a matter of fact, there were a couple of times I actually called the, the detailer or HR de- department in the Navy and wanted to quit, thinking you could just walk away. Well, you can't walk away, of course. But that's how miserable I was. So I started reading about leadership. This is a long time ago. And I guess I didn't realize how passionate I was about it, especially military leadership. I just I just love reading about military leaders. And I came up with some thoughts on leadership. Jump ahead 20 years. I was selected to be commanding officer of Bremerton Naval Hospital. And I had a moment three nights before the change of command ceremony, this very formal ceremony, where I couldn't sleep. I was tossing and turning and realized I'd probably outkick my coverage. And I was just a little nervous about this whole command thing. And I wake my wife up and she looks at me, she goes, what's going on? I tell her I'm a little nervous about this command thing. She goes, well, you know, it is a big deal. But she's asked me, she goes, what are you specifically nervous about? And I said, Chris, here's the deal, man. I know how to run pharmacies, but I'm not sure I really know how to run a hospital. And I'm not saying I was incompetent, but there are so many other people more qualified, I guess, on paper to run that hospital. But she looked at me, she said, Mark, you've been studying leadership your whole life. Be the best leader you can be, and we'll see what happens. And that's what I did, Darren. And what I specifically realized what I needed to do as a leader, I needed to just take care of my people. I wanted to build a relationship with my people. I wanted to build trust with them. And that's what we did. And it took, you know, building trust takes time. You can't do it overnight. But over six, nine months, I built a relationship with the staff. We had about 1,500 people. I walked around a lot, everything that's in the book. And we were wildly successful in spite of the fact that I really, to this day, I'm not an expert in running a hospital. And that gave me such insight into leadership and it inspired me to write the book. And it's just, uh, it's been a wild journey. And now, like you, I talked to a lot of leaders and it all really boils down to the leaders who take care of the people are most successful and those that don't. And it's as simple as that. Yeah, I love what you said in terms of it was a situation where you said you outkicked your coverage. So a nice football metaphor analogy, which is great, but... Just the idea, you maybe felt a little bit over your head. You maybe had some beliefs in your head of, I don't have the experience to do this. But I think it's really interesting what you said is you really said, I'm going to lean into my people. I'm going to take care of my people first and foremost and figure out everything else along the way. But can you take us through that 
journey, if you will, in terms of how did you get to the point where you really were confident and competent in terms of running a hospital, which was something that was new for you? Yeah, no, it took months and I, you know, I probably faked it well, but I tell you, Darren, honestly, there's a lot of folks still in Bremerton who are there who probably, you know, I don't know if they knew when I came to those meetings, every morning we had a board of directors meeting and I was always a little nervous thinking, man, I hope they don't realize how not clueless, but how much I need to learn. But I was very transparent. I and mean, they people said to me, hey, Mark, you know, cap broker or sir, whatever, what do you think of this? And I'd say, you know what? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. So I said, I don't know a lot. And it's interesting, Jeff Immel, which is a lesson itself, Darren, I think, you know, and I didn't realize it till I read this review of Jeff Immel wrote a book. I guess it came out a couple months ago. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but, you know, he was CEO of GE and he took that company. Didn't, he didn't do a very good job from, you know, market capitalization really. Viewpoint. It went from 600 billion to 100 billion. And at the end of this interview, the Wall Street Journal interviewed him for his book. They said, What's one thing you could have done better? Because I should have said, I don't know more, which I thought was great humility. And I think he was kind of conveying that he probably should have had a little bit more humility when he was in that job. So I think, you know, saying you don't know as a leader is, is extremely important. And I said, I don't know a lot. And I learned a lot. I, I was willing to learn. But, you know, I, I guess over that three years, it took probably a year to realize that this thing was really happening. The second year became very powerful. The third year, we started winning national awards. It really got very, very exciting in that third year. I just realized things were clicking and, and we had a good thing going. And the last thing I just say is a leader, there are many times, you know, when you're leading of any kind of group, a crisis comes up. And, and sometimes when I really had that confidence, I felt good that where we were, I didn't, when I look forward to crises, but when they happened, it was like, oh my goodness, this is another opportunity to build trust and grow the team even more. But that took a long time. That was something that did not happen instantaneous. It, it, uh, building trust is, is a journey. And there's so much richness in what you said. I love that in terms of just the courage to say, I don't know. And you mentioned Jeffrey Immelt, obviously very successful, the CEO. And likewise with you, is, but that takes a lot of confidence. I think so many times leaders think they have to be the subject matter expert of experts, if you will. But as you mentioned, it, it sometimes is about leading from the back too, in terms of empowering people that do know more than you and to learn more than them and just to be curious and be willing to be vulnerable and say, I don't have the answer to everything, but I'm going to learn. And clearly, I'm looking at the bookshelf behind you and you're a lifelong learner. Yeah, well, thanks. And again, I guess the other thing is, is you, you know that you know, what you do as a leader is emulated. Everything you do as a leader is, is generally emulated. Gallup has done you know, surveys on this where 60% on average are people, six out of 10 people are going to emulate what you do. And that's on average. If you're very charismatic, it's going to be even more, you know, you get the idea. So even saying, I don't know, that's a habit, it's a behavior that's going to be emulated. And you want your people to say, I don't know, because again, no one's an expert in everything. And to show transparency and just be honest with your team, uh, instead of BSing them, it's really, really important. Sets a culture of trust and, and gets you on a good course. You mentioned something also just in terms of using crises to actually build trust. I know you talk about that a lot in your book. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's a unique take. I mean, most people think about crises. Let's just get through this. Let's just survive, whether it's a personnel issue, a strategic issue, a competitive issue, a marketplace issue. So tell me about how you've used crises in the past to actually develop trust with your team. Yeah, you know, that's a, it really is a weird dynamic, I guess. Is a, but I, I thought deeply about this. And really, the end of the day is this, Darren, I, I, what I've concluded was, it is, it's in the book, it's a chapter on this, is every interaction that you have with an employee, whatever, you know, a staff member, is an opportunity to build trust. Every single interaction, whether it's a social media post, 
a tweet or a passing in the hallway, a social event, having a beer with your team at the social event. Every interaction is an opportunity to build trust. Some interactions are more impactful than others. Obviously, a one-on-one meeting, very impactful. But a crisis is an amazing opportunity. When the leader gets it right, we talk about in the book, and there's some kinds of good documentation how to lead in a crisis, you know, meaning calm, get in front of your people, all the things you do. But if you do that well, those are amazing opportunities to build the team even stronger. And so like I kind of inferred that I can't say this all the time. There are many crises that happened at Bremerton that I just, I don't think I panicked, but I, I wasn't really on my game and I was more reactive. But there were some, for instance, we had uh, we had a huge uh, earthquake in Haiti. I, I think it was 2009. And I got the call from headquarters. It was over a weekend. I remember it was January, I think. Uh, the football game was on and stuff. Anyway, I got a call from my boss saying, hey, we're going to take your basically your entire board of directors and deploy them to Haiti. And kind of a big deal. You're basically losing all your primary leaders. So I had them all come on in that Sunday, I believe it was. And But I felt like, wow, this is an opportunity to have other leaders step up. And I just, I was in that mindset. I was in that good zone where I I was excited that this is an amazing opportunity to build trust. And again, you can't measure trust, but I I, I felt in my heart, we did build a lot of trust. And in fact, the, the team never did deploy. It was just a kind of a, a drill. It just never happened. But the point is, I was in a good place there. And when, if leaders can get in good places with this, these, these crises, you can build an amazing amount of trust. And we could talk about this with the COVID things. I've done a lot of work with a lot of, mostly hospital CEOs, about COVID and stuff, but uh, some came through COVID stronger and others came through much weaker. And and we could talk about that if you want, but it's a, it's every interaction is an opportunity to build trust. Crises are amazing opportunities. Yeah, I love that. I think about anytime you're in front of your boss, whether it's happy or whatnot, you're always being judged, you're always being observed. But I like, I like this very positive spin, which is every opportunity is provides an opportunity to be trusted. I mean, what a great tip. So Take me through, you know, a specific, is there a crisis you could say, or how do people actually go about building trust in that moment? Because I know people are really interested in like, how actually can I take advantage of that? Not take advantage, that sounds opportunistic, but how can I really be sure to build that trust when we're going through tough times? Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things. And, and I, actually, interesting, I, I added that chapter at the end of my book is, bottom line is the book came out in November. It was basically finished in March when, this is March, 2020. And my publisher, Roman Littlefield, everything they had hit pretty hard, obviously, in New York. So there was really no communication with my publisher for two months. And I kind of knew that. So I had nothing to do. I rewrote the book, frankly, but I added that chapter of crises because I was getting a lot of calls from some of my clients about what to do in this COVID mess. So I guess the, the, these, this is kind of common sense stuff, but I guess one thing, you got to be visible. You got to get in front of your people and obviously Zoom calls or whatever you got to do, but you got to communicate with your people. It's, it's extremely important. I have a whole chapter on it in the book, but in a crisis, that's even more important. People want to see you. And I'll share with you, there were a couple of clients at the pretty good sized hospitals who were reticent to get in front of their people because they didn't have any answers. This is in March. You know, this we didn't know what was going on with COVID. Uh, it was very mysterious. And there's a lot of questions. And they told me, they said, I don't have any, I don't have any answers for their questions. I don't really know anything. I said, it doesn't matter. Get as much intel as you can, go out there and talk with them, and have a Zoom call, have a meeting. Be honest. In, in, so in these meetings is obviously very important. Just don't panic. You got to give people hope, which is really a difficult thing to do. But you've got to give people hope that their efforts are going to be worth a, a bigger, worth their effort. Uh, and there's a whole thing about that with Stockdale paradox. I, we could talk about that in a, in a, if you want. But it's a kind of a fascinating 
paradox, really, literally what it is, is, is how do you maintain an hour of optimism in a crisis? Well, you've got to do it. You've got to have, again, give people hope. You know, it's okay in a crisis to say, I don't know, because in a crisis, by definition, it's all unknowns. So those are a couple of things. Be visible, be transparent, and be generally optimistic. Give your people hope in, in a crisis. Really, really important. Let's get on that path. I'd love to hear about how do you give people hope? I mean, I'm such a big believer in optimism, and you have to have faith or hope in the future. Things are going to turn out right. So if you lose that, there really is no path for it. But how do you, practically speaking, as a leader, especially in a crisis, how do you create that sense of hope? Yeah, I'm going to give a, a silly example but it's the best example I can give you. I just heard it today on a call with one of the folks I'm coaching, uh, CEO of a hospital, a parking issue. And it's kind of a, a strange answer to the question, but just follow me on this. Is If you st- listen to Stephen Covey, his great book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I'm sure probably everyone on the lines heard about it or read it. One of his things is the circle of influence, a circle of control. Uh, some things you can influence, some things you cannot control. So in a crisis, you got to figure out pretty quickly, what can you control? And most of it's not, you can't control much. What you can control are your behaviors. Uh, your behaviors are going to drive that culture. So the parking thing, just to give you an example, this optimism, being optimistic, generally optimistic. So I, I gave this talk a couple of years ago in Bethesda Naval Hospital, and, and someone said, you know, the parking here stinks. You know, parking stinks here at the hospital. You know, how do you put a happy face on that? You got to walk a quarter mile. I said, well, here's what I would do. When a new person comes aboard the hospital, say, talk about the great things that are happening at that hospital. The president comes here. The Congress comes here. We have great case mix complexity. We get Army folks here. We we're working with the Army. The bad news is you got to walk pretty far. It's going to be a quarter-mile hike. you got to bring a couple of pair of shoes and bring an umbrella. It is what it is. We're not going to fix the parking anytime soon, so welcome aboard. So the point is, is you don't mire in the bad news, You but you don't ignore it. You don't ignore the elephant in the room. But don't let it take over and overwhelm the conversation. There's other things that are good happening in a company. There's always good things happen in a company. Talk about those things. Another company I'll just share with you real quick was going through this, this, uh, this COVID thing. And they always started a meeting with good news. They talked about the tough stuff. And there's a lot of tough stuff. But they always ended with a, on a high note, thinking, you know what? We went through something like this a couple of years ago with the 2008 financial crisis. We got through that. So it's a very difficult thing to explain to people how to do it. But in what, when you're facing a crisis, you must be mindful to maintain that optimism. Don't go down that pessimism hole. It's poison. I mean, I love it gets back to what you said about being honest and just being willing to say, I don't know, or in this case, not sugarcoating it. Look, it is a long walk. You do need an umbrella, bring, you know, pack comfortable shoes or whatnot, and then focusing on the positive. So yeah, great examples of how you can provide that sense of positivity, that sense of hope. I'd love to back up a bit because I know one of the premises of your book is you talk about trust as being the pillar of leadership that's most overlooked. And you know, it's well-documented. Google did that Project Aristotle and found that psychological safety or the presence of psychological safety, which is basically trust, is the key indicator to highest performing team. So why do you think that trust is an overlooked attribute or pillar, as you call it, of leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I actually added a lot in the book on that because it is a conundrum. How, why is it we don't put, and again, trust, there's there's a couple of attributes of trust, I guess, or factors in trust. One trust is competency. You got to have some level of competency. You've got to have certainly other things with, with trust. But what is missing is, like you alluded to, Darren, is why do people not 
think about the caring piece of it. When at the end of the day, when people feel that their leader cares for them, trust is formed. And why leaders don't understand that, I think there's a couple of things. One, I think there's so much information there out there about leadership. It's ubiquitous. There's just so much information. And the common sense stuff gets lost in all the information. But to take care of your people, and when some, if you work for me and you conclude that Mark Broker cares for my well-being, trust is formed, you'll be more likely to tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. You'll be more likely to tell me things that could happen that are risky that we need to start thinking about. Those are all extremely important attributes of a successful company. Like I said, I think there's so much information out there about leadership that probably a little bit too theoretical. And the other thing is, I don't think this is really taught. There's not a lot of teaching at MBA programs and other you know, leadership development programs. It talks about the power of care. And we call it soft skills, which is probably the worst possible name we could give these things. It's so powerful. And in my research, I've just realized that this is the most important thing that leaders can do to build trust and obviously create successful teams and organizational excellence. Yeah, I mean, it's some of the soft skills. I mean, that's the big premise of, you know, a lot of the work that I do in my own book is about this internal journey that we go on as leaders to become great because so much time courses you reference that are really about some of the hard skills, how to be a better decision maker, how to be a better orator, how to be better at assessing risk. But there's so much that goes on internally, but just even, you know, you seeing as a successful ex-military guy, and being willing to go there about caring about people. Yeah, it is the softest of soft skills. It's, it requires empathy. But I like the way you break down trust into some different components. I think a word like trust can be applied in different ways, but it's like trust that they'll get it done, trust that they'll make the right decision, trust that they'll do the right thing. You know, that, that gets back to values. And it, at least those are words that I'm applying to, but it's an interesting word. And But I like the way you're talking about caring about people as the basis to create trust and how important that is. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned decision-making. It's, you know, it's leaders. That's really what you're doing. You're making decisions. And when you have a culture where people can give their input, you're going to have better decision-making. It's just, again, common sense. But if you have a culture of fear, you're not going to have good intel. You're not going to have all the information. And again, you're never going to have all the information for any decision. Let's just be completely honest. But when you have a culture of trust, people are more likely to tell you information. And the more information you have in any kind of a leader, you're going to make better decisions. It's just it's common sense. So that's why this, this taking care of your people, building trust, it is the most important thing leaders can do. Yeah, it just gets back to you know what you were saying before in terms of leaders having to model it, right? I mean, if the leader is the one who's just slamming someone, oh, that's a terrible idea that starts to get mirrored or mimicked by the team. And it's also, it's so important that they both model that, but they also reinforce it. And they don't allow other people on the team to erode some of that trust. Because yeah, then you're going to miss out on some of those great ideas because people are scared to actually raise their hand and give a contrarian point of view to float out an idea that might be crazy at the time that turns turns out to be the idea that saves the company organization. Yeah, yeah. And I I just, literally this morning, I was on a call early this morning as a West East Coast Hall, I'm on the West Coast here, but it was a call about this group of hospitals. I'm not going to mention the company, but they had a couple of really bad events. I mean, seriously bad events. Things happen like this at hospitals. It's just the way it is. But what was interesting, two different parts of the country. And what was the comment between those two? Because I read both reports was there was a reluctance of people to tell higher ups what was going on. And there was a culture of fear. And I talked to the CEO this morning. And I told a story about Bezos's company, Amazon. 
where Amazon Prime came from, Darren, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but it came from an idea from some guy who's probably making minimum wage down in the, in the basement putting boxes together. That idea, he, he vocalized it to his boss. It went up to Bezos pretty quickly, and they implemented it, and Prime, Amazon Prime is, is you know, a huge moneymaker. But my point is, how many other ideas did this kid have? Probably a lot. This was not his one and done. He probably had 10 ideas. They were maybe stupid ideas, but no one crushed his spirit. They had a culture there where they did not take bad ideas and crush spirits. So what I, we're trying to create these hospitals, and I think every company should be looking at this, is you want the input from the people at the very lowest level because they know the problems, they know the solutions. Uh, and when you empower them and, and create a culture where they can tell you some more intel, the, the better you can solve the, the crises that are going to be coming. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I think that as leaders, we do need to push that out into the organization that they need to have ownership, not just to be accountable for their KPIs, for what's in their job description, but they need to have more of that ownership ownership mindset. It's because they are the ones that are hearing about things first. They're hearing about competitors. They're hearing about complaints about their product or service. But I also think it goes bottoms up. And I encourage people, even if they're on the front lines of an organization as a sales rep or a customer service person, to really step up. And I think that's our responsibility, especially within organizations when we've seen just a profound failure of leadership at the top across just you name it, insert industry, company, organization, you've seen it. And we, I think, even as the rank and file of the front line, need to step up and actually assume that stance of a leader. Because I think that's our jobs as well, is we need to hold them accountable. We need to really be leaders because... That's how we can create strong, agile organizations that can adapt over time as new competitive threats come in, new changes. And obviously, change is probably one of the few guarantees in life, right? So great point. I love what you said about that in terms of we all have to take ownership of that and be leaders. Yeah. And and I'll just share with you real quick. It is fascinating. I find it fascinating that both these hospitals have this uh, value that it is the, how do they put it? You must have the moral courage, the the folks at the very, you know, the, the individual contributors must have the moral courage to speak up. Well, that's a hell of a lot easier when you've got a boss who's willing to listen. It's a hell of a lot harder when you have a boss who you bring an idea up, they roll their eyes or literally shut you down. So it's not up to the individual contributors to bring this stuff up. Obviously, we want them to. Some people have a lot of courage, will do it. But it's up to the leader to create that culture that will embolden these folks and, and give them the the space to safely bring these things up. So I had a hard time with that. So, you know, don't, you can't demand these people say something. If you've got a crazy leader down there who's always shooting people's ideas, no one's going to say anything. you got to train the leaders to react and behave appropriately. And in the book, we talk about it. It's, it's all about your behaviors as a leader. That creates the culture. It's, it, it drives the culture, drives performance. I really like that what you said in terms of you're creating that space for them to actually share some of those things. So yeah, it really is the onus is on the leader to actually create that space, to make it create trust, to create it safe for you to float up a new idea that may be crazy or seem crazy at the time. Yeah. And, and again, you know, for every good idea, there's probably nine bad ones. But again, you got to keep those ideas coming. You don't know where the gold is. Absolutely. So what else? So I know you talk about a lot of things in your book. You talk about knowing your staff. You talked about being visible earlier. You talked about respect. Don't ignore good or bad performance. You talked about optimism, continuously learning the art of leadership. Like what else? you want to provide in terms of what you've learned over your career in the military and beyond in terms of how, like, what's so important about how does that drive trust? Yeah, you know, I, th- I guess the the one thing I would say, and it's under respect, Darren, you know, respect sounds so trite. You know, obviously, it, every company has this in their policy procedures. We will treat our customers and each other with respect, and it's all good. 
But what does that mean? You know, what does that look like? Well, what it looks like is, you know, as a silly example, but a leader who talks too much, who just monopolizes the conversation, doesn't respond to emails in a timely manner amongst a million others. But I guess the one thing that the ultimate form of respect when you think about this, Darren, is listening. And listening with your heart, as, as Colin Powell said, who's obviously one of my fans, and he's just a tremendous leader. But if there's one thing I could convey to the leaders out there who are listening and the folks who aspire to be leaders is if you can listen better, you are going to set yourself apart as a leader. And listening is hard, man, because you're always thinking the next thing, you know, next thing to say. But listening with your heart and giving people the space to convey their thoughts and concerns is the ultimate form of respect. And leaders can, you know, I was never good at it. I was always thinking the next thing to say. I'm still working on it. But listening is uh, the ultimate form of respect. And if I could convey one thing that leaders can do better, work on your listening skills. Great point, because it's, yeah, instead of saying listening to find the next smart thing to say, to be the expert, it's also the, it gets back to the, I don't know, but listening truly from your heart and focusing on that other person and their agenda. And so not just thinking about that smart thing. For me, that was part of a hard transition from being a consultant to being an executive coach was not just thinking for that next smart thing to say, not trying to be the smartest person in the room, but really trying to listen, having empathy and trying to help them guide them to new awareness, new opportunities. So, but it's hard, as you mentioned. Yeah, it is hard. And, uh, you know, I think of, uh, what Jim Collins wrote that book, Good to Great, I know what, what makes companies great. And one of the attributes of great companies is a humble leader and humble leaders are very good listeners. And I always think back on that, you know, just again, listening is the ultimate form of respect. It just gives people the space and ability to, to convey their thoughts, concerns, and, and you can have a, a much stronger team when you, when you do that well. Yeah. I mean, that's a great way to, cause think about respect. You said it's a bit trite and it can be overused. It's yeah, very common corporate value, but actually how do you practice that? And I love that in terms of listening is the ultimate form of respect, but getting back to humility, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's being those great leaders. They don't have to be the expert of experts. It's, and that really, that can actually really impact people's communication too. I've found is that not always assuming you have the answer and truly listening to those frontline people, listening to people on your team, listening, not just to your superiors per se, or people higher in the organization who have more expertise, but really listening outward. And I think that actually is a great sign of humility, but also can really underscore more effective communication as well. Yeah. And you said something very profound. You said being the smartest person in the room. It's the opposite of humility is arrogance. Who, you know, if you ever work for an arrogant leader who thinks they know everything and they're, they're the smartest person in the room, it just it is crushes creativity. It crushes companies. And the opposite, how do you prevent becoming arrogant? Listen, listening is the way to prevent yourself from being arrogant. So and that's hard to do as you get higher up in the ranks and you know become CEO, C suite, making a, a healthy salary. It's easy to slip into arrogance thinking you know everything, but just guard yourself from, from always listening and you'll prevent yourself from, from stepping into arrogance. Yeah, I think also just check your title at the door, right? Don't just assume because you have a title that you have to be an arrogant leader. You can still be humble. You can still be a great listener. You can still have respect for your people. Yeah, and you'll still make mistakes. I just I just got to say this real quick. I, I was teaching a couple of years ago and this kid never said a word there in the entire class. And we're about ready to end the class. He raised his hand. He goes, I got a question for you. What do you do when you, you make a mistake as a leader? And I said, man, that's a great question. And I asked him, what do you think? He goes, well, I think you need to own up to it. I said, absolutely. Again, another interaction that can have a significant impact on trust because everyone in the new room knows you screwed up. And if you start deflecting it, you know, they're, they're trusting you is going to dissipate. So 
as bizarre as it sounds, when you make a mistake, and I don't care who you are, uh, you're going to make mistakes, own up to it, and don't try to hide it, and your, your people will trust you more, as, as crazy as that sounds. And what just gets back to what you said, every opportunity is a chance to create trust. And that's a, a wonderful one, right? When you make a mistake, I mean, how, how refreshing is that for you if your leader actually owns up to a mistake or just even falls in the sword for the entire team? Go, look, you know, ultimately they're the one who has, you know, extreme ownership, obviously that concept, but it's such a wonderful way to build that trust amongst team members. Yeah, yeah, really, exactly. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you coming on today. Where can people go to find more out about you, about your book, everything that you're up to these days. Yeah, well, thanks, Darren. So uh, my website is Broker Leadership Solutions, and it's Broker, it's B-R-O-U-K-E-R, LeadershipSolutions.com. The book, I think they're probably the easiest place is Amazon Prime, but you know, Barnes & Noble has it available on the shelf at many of the bookstores. But uh, if you want to get it quick, probably Amazon Prime is the easiest way to get it. And uh, it's doing well, and I'm very thrilled about that. And and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book too, Darren. I've heard good things about it. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, appreciate your time. All right, Darren. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.